Are you searching for new books to read for the new year? Look no further than Reading While Black podcast. Reading While Black is a cross-platform online group and podcast where we dissect and discuss African-American literature. We select novels penned by authors of color and discuss their writing process, purpose of the novel, and celebrate black literary art. Reading While Black promotes reading as a self-help tool for better mental health. We believe in selecting books by us, with us in mind, while also providing a safe space where individuals can speak about their experiences living in this world while black and tell their stories. You can find Reading While Black podcast on several different platforms like Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Breaker, and Stitcher, just to name a few. Just search Reading While Black. Now, let's get back to the show. Cut it, open up his chip Got a cush pack shells and some Henny we can sip Keep a couple dollars, I don't give a penny to a bitch But I'm with a couple hoes who say they really wanna get Acquainted with some niggas who ain't the average niggas They just wanna see why all their girlfriends be wanting pictures I be flying in the hundred net, worth a hundred hundred stack I ain't gonna stop shopping till I hit a hundred sacks Follow that's a given, I ain't even got a mention Candy old school, put you niggas in detention Slab niggas geeked up, tool in the clothes I'm just a young fresh fly fool with some gold Hey, hey what it do my dude I'm living life dog what about you And I ain't even gotta tell a lie My swag my steeds got a nigga sky high So I watch my moves from my shoes on a cool beat Damn if a nigga ain't high to the roof Tip tight get it right homie more or less all right welcome ladies and gents happy new year this is the thank god i'm fresh podcast this is dr tgif and i have a very special guest with me today um a friend and fan of the podcast also a very special guest from the reading while black podcast um, which you can also check out. And um, one of my favorite people on Twitter, um, my unofficial auntie or big sister, <laughs> as I like to call her, uh, Miss Kia Speaks. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited as well. Um, we got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, a lot of stuff went down um, in 2019. 2019 started off with a bang. Um, it really, uh, goddamn pretty, um, pretty quick. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, your boy, uh, your favorite pastor in the world, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, out here buying Lambos for his wife, but turns out that he actually, um, nearly lost his wife in a divorce. Apparently John Gray, uh, got caught up, got caught cheating. Um, and there's rumors that the woman might be pregnant, uh, which I'm hearing a lot of different stuff about this. It's kind of funny. Uh, it's the funny, I found out about this in the weirdest of ways. Like I came home to come see my mom before I moved. And the first thing she tells me when I walk in the room, guess who cheated on their wife? And I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) 
I was like, you never have tea like this, first of all. So, okay, who? And she was like, John Gray. I said, I beg your nigger pardon, what? <laughs> um, and she and then she proceeded to go to YouTube on her smart TV, which I didn't know she could do. So kudos to my aunt for knowing how to work technology. Um, and all of a sudden she shows me this YouTube page that like covers mega church gossip. So the first thing I said was I did not know that mega church gossip uh <laughs> youtube pages existed <laughs> this is a completely different uh realm of the internet that i've never been to uh and i definitely <laughs> spent a little time there for a while uh because i had a good old time but in this video i bet you did yeah i did <laughs> um and so in the video john gray is um in front of his congregation and um he really gets very candid and real about you know, not just being a, a pastor of a mega church or, or uh, you know, coming from, you know, two mega churches and now, you know, heading his own church um, in the Carolinas, but dealing with being a celebrity and, you know, being in the spotlight and on top of that, also, you know, trying to maintain this image. And in this moment, I was, I've never been that big of a fan of John Gray. But this was maybe the first moment in a long time where wherever that I became a fan because I felt like he was being honest and he was being real. Mm -hmm. He was talking about, mm -hmm. you know, potentially, you know, losing his wife, even though he was, you know, standing in front of people smiling and waving and, you know, but, you know, dealing with, you know, arguing with his wife at home and kids not knowing when he's going to, you know, home mm -hmm. and their mom and dad going to stop arguing and all of these other things and the one thing that I love what, what, when pastors are transparent and so yes. for him to be vulnerable and transparent like that, I was really appreciative of him. And then his wife got on the mic. <laughs> uh, oh. um, I really like, I'm not one of the people who ever tells black women not to speak, but this time I was like, girl, I don't know what you thought this was, sis, but this ain't it. Uh, I don't know if you saw the video. It was just kind of, I did. It was kind of weird. Um, I know that John has never been. You know, he wasn't as I like to. He, they say he was a late bloomer when it came to the date. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, he was molested as a child um, and struggled mm -hmm. with sexuality. Which um, I'm not going to accuse him, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some respect some repressed sexual feelings there may or may not be. Mm -hmm. um, that's up to him to figure out. That's his uh, cross to bear. But um, I guess the way that she was trying to explain it is, you know, he just got, you know, this, he got a little bit of fame and, you know, the women, you know, you know, throwing that holy box at him now. Like, uh, <laughs> is it holy really, though? I don't, it might be. Is it? Um, it might turn water into wine. Uh <laughs> But I, I like seeing him go through this is just uh, in a moment where he was being really vulnerable. I was really upset that she snatched the mic from him because I was like, bro, he's being real. Like, this is the first time that you because, mm -hmm. you know, we're in an age now of celebrity where pastors have reality shows. Now, this is very common. John Gray has yes. a very popular reality show on own network that people watch regularly. My mom is a big fan. So to see him, you know, say, you know, forget all this um, celebrity stuff. I'm being real. 
almost lost my wife because I was being stupid and he was owning up to his mistakes and his issues that he had in his marriage. And it was just unfortunate to see her not, you know, amen and agree with him. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he made a mistake. He had to earn me back. It wasn't about like, she made it about her staying down. And I was like, I get mm-hmm. you down because you were a wife. I understand that people cheat, people make mistakes. I'm not going to tell anybody to leave or whether that, whether to stay. Um, because it depends on the situation. However, I am kind of big on, you know, that nigga cheat, leave that nigga. Um, but to see her like kind of backtrack and be like, I stayed down and all this other stuff. And then you see all these women, you know, amening agree- and agreeing. And you're like, but he just said like something that was really profound. And it's like, y'all missed it. <laughs> so I just wanted to get your opinion on it. Because um, I remember I sent it to you and you were like, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> Mine was blown, but it also explained a lot of the stuff that he has been saying when he talks about his relationship. So um, actually about 10 years ago, I went to a church where John Gray was the young adult minister. And this was before he was married and he was really going through a season in his life where he wanted to be married. So I got to see a lot of that vulnerable John Gray and I have a lot of beef with him like as far as him being very patriarchal some people would even and with that with him being patriarchal comms being sexist making misogynistic statements um, really embracing gender roles that results in homophobia and transphobia as well so like I've had issues with a lot of things he's done over the years um I remember the first thing was he was mad about Target taking down the gender assignments or um in the like he was felt really strongly about there being girl toys and there being boy toys and these toys need to be labeled as such very strange heel to die on But um, one thing I have always appreciated with him was he comes from a place like good, bad, from a place of vulnerability and honesty. Like what he says, he truly believes that. And I appreciated him doing that in that moment, because like what you said, he was accepting responsibility for his actions. Mm -hmm. And that is what we need. His wife did what we teach what the church as an institution, not your personal church, because I know your church is great or whatnot, but what the institution of church teaches women to do. And that is to make excuses for men, to spiritualize the harm that men cause, and to reward yourself by saying, because I stayed and endured this, I am a more spiritual person. And God's going to now me for it. Yes. Now, I'm not telling anyone, like, I am a strong believer that it is between you and your partner to work out your marital situation and any infidelity that shows up in your relationship. So I'm not saying get up and leave. You have to make that decision between you and your kids and the finance, like, work that out. But. I think there should always be accountability. And what she was doing is, even if it didn't 
look like that when they were working it out in their homes, what she was presenting to these women in her church who she's pastoring and leading is this is a spiritual battle. When in reality, this is people need personal accountability. And when you spiritualize stuff, instead of talking about the personal accountability, you mess it up for you put women in a situation where they accept things that they should not accept, accept behaviors that they should not accept. And that bothers me a lot. Yeah. That's one thing that I thought about. It's like the, I I think, I don't think um, we often talk about the role of black women in church and black women being the backbone of the black church Mm -hmm. primarily. And if they all collectively said, yo, we're not going to church no more. Uh, for a year, like, there would there not would, be a church. There would be no church. Um, and one thing that I think about is the role and the power of the first lady in the church, and she really sets a standard in the church. You know, from the top down. Um, you know, mm-hmm. when you think about the pa- you know, the patriarch that is, you know, the pastor's family. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from the from the pastor to the first lady to the kids, et cetera, et cetera, on down. All these people, you know, in, in especially in black churches, we treat first ladies and pastors like, you know, they're extended king and queen. Like they king and queen, like they are extended, you know, parents, parental figures. Yes, yes. You know, they are spiritual, you know, spiritual, you know, mothers and fathers to a lot of people. And so when you are when you get on stage and you say, well, because I stayed down, you know, in so many words that God is going to bless me because I'm paraphrasing, you know, and your husband just said, I was wrong. I made mistakes. I needed to own up to this. I need to take responsibility for my actions, which is what black women have been asking black men to do. And here it is a guy who, despite his faults, which the faults that you bring up are extremely valid, because um, mm-hmm. it's rife in patriarchy and gender roles and things of that nature. For the first time ever, we see John Gray say something that is real and that is him being accountable for his actions. And then she just kind of mushes that out the way. And it was mm-hmm. almost like in her snatching that mic, she snatched away his message. And I felt like somebody needed to hear that and they missed out on that. Um, mm. I hope that people catch that you know what i'm saying that's why i wanted to have a conversation about this because i I hope that people caught what he was saying at the beginning especially black men and even black women for that matter because you would think that his wife would be like yeah he screwed up and he almost lost me and i had all right to leave like and from a biblical standpoint the only way that you know women can or women or men can leave marriages is technically through divorce like she could have gladly got up packed her things took her kids and bounced you know she didn't have to stay um right. and i don't come i don't give people badges for staying or leaving like that's up to you and your household whatever you want to do is up to you but like for her husband to get up there and expose himself you know because especially being a celebrity you know because he, I would consider him definitely a celebrity um, at this point. You know, being a reality, you know, you know, family, especially, I liken them a lot to what it reminds me. Everybody's like trying to chase that Rev Run model. Um, like back in the day when, you know, Run's house came out, it was like 
such a great positive TV show, you know, regardless of its faults and, you know, how people feel about Rev Run and some of the stuff that he says, because um, it's also rooted in patriarchy. But um, it seems like they're trying to chase that emulation uh, and, you know, him being in that spotlight, you know, he's done a lot of, you know, stupid things. I really wish he never went to the White House. Um, mm-hmm. Huge mistake. And it just seems like mm-hmm. everything that he's done, it's been kind of erratic. And now it kind of makes sense. Um, but, you, you know, um, I don't approve of him going to the White House at all. Let me make that clear. But I also rationalize his train of thought because you got to understand he's been um a pastor at Joel Osteen's church for the last few years mm. so he's worked with people who voted for Trump mm-hmm. you know probably including Joel Osteen <laughs> hello yeah <laughs> so and he may have voted for him himself True. so um it so yeah, I understand why he showed up at the table. It was a horrible decision and yeah. Horrible business decision. Uh <laughs> not the best. Um, but I wish John Gray nothing but the best in this, you know, endeavor. Um, never thought I'd say that I'm proud of him. Uh, but I'm proud of him. I hope that he continues to unlearn the patriarchy that he stuck on. I doubt that that happens. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder what it will take for him to unlearn that. Like, uh, because I don't even, see, I don't think he sees it as a problem. And that's what scares me. True. And that, um, that's scary for a lot of pastors now that I think about mm-hmm. it. Um, but moving on, we got another guy who's uh, got a cheating past. <laughs> Who doesn't? Oh. Um, Mr. Kevin, you said it, not me. Um, I mean, he's the one who got caught. It's not my fault. Uh, (laughs) too short to be getting caught, but so, uh, oh Lord, I know where you're going. (laughs) (laughs) So Kevin Hart, uh, has been in the news for quite some time since 2018. Um, we actually talked about this on the very first episode of the TGI podcast, uh, last year in December um, about some past homophobic tweets and jokes that he made um, about 10 years, about 10, 11 years ago. And at first, uh, you know, the Oscars basically said, yo, you got some old tweets. Could you please post an apology about it? You know, so on and so forth. And instead of just apologizing, he, you know, resigned uh, from going to the Grammys. And I was like, uh, okay. Uh, so he said that he stated that he already apologized. He was referring to a Rolling Stones interview that he did about some old jokes that he made referring to not wanting his son to be gay and why. And in -hmm. in that interview, he never actually stated that he, he never actually apologized. He said, you know, if these, if I did these jokes now, they wouldn't work because people are so sensitive calling you know saying that jokes are you know different now in this year versus you know back in 2008 when you originally made these jokes is not apologizing first of all I just want to clarify it is not it's not apologizing apologizing is saying I'm sorry (laughs) all right uh and so for Kevin Hart to go around with this narrative that he's apologized already 
when you haven't is is like weird. And it's kind of been weird seeing the media portray this because they've always almost made him out to be a victim. And it's like, you're not a victim, dude. Like, and kudos to his media team. Right. Because for them to flip that like that, that is amazing. But I'm just, it's trash, to be honest with you. Like, going on Ellen and Ellen, you know, giving an apology, like saying, you know, I, you know, we forgive you. I'm like, first off, Ellen, like, I understand that you're gay but he wasn't talking about white gay people. He was talking about black gay people. And so one, that black, that black queer people need to be the folks that are, you know, being judge and jury over whether they accept Kevin Hart's apology, because if Kevin Hart's son was gay, he wouldn't intersect in the world of white queer women or white queer men. Uh, he mm-hmm. would intersect in the world of being black and being gay at the same time. So I love Ellen to death, love her new stand up. But who told you that you had the right to, you know, wipe away oh. all of Kevin Hart's sins, which I just didn't understand. It just didn't really make any <laughs> sense to me. I was like, I don't know what's going on here. And uh, shout out to George Johnson. Um, if you guys don't follow George Johnson, he's a journalist and an activist. He's on Twitter. His uh, Twitter name is I am GM Johnson. I wanted to get him. Yes. Podcast. I love George so much. And he was a person who brought this to my attention um, in some of his tweets. He posted a video about this um, on his page after Ellen uh, did the interview with him. And I was like, who gave Ellen the right? And I, it was something that I thought about, but, you know, as a straight black man, I was like, I don't know if this is my place to say this. And sometimes I keep my mouth shut. But uh, for a person who is queer, who is black in that space, for George to say that being a black gay man, he definitely has the right to say it. He's absolutely right about saying it because Kevin Hart's not referring to white gay men and white gay women. Like, he's not. Right. Like, this is deeply rooted in homophobia that is in the African-American community, um, primarily. And so, like, he went on Stephen Colbert, and Stephen Colbert, you know, pressed him about the issues. And, you know, he said that he apologized, and he said that he's over it. He says, I'm done, and all this other stuff. But in that same breath, he still, you know, said, I apologize. Uh, And what's been really funny is... um, if you haven't seen Don Lemon's response to this, it has actually been uh, really funny. Uh, Don has said, you know, quote, apologizing and moving on does not make the world a better place for people who are gay and who are transgender. And mm-hmm. credit to Don Lemon, the evolution of Don Lemon in the last couple of years has been amazing. Uh, <laughs> like, I'm glad uh, you brought that up. Uh, but please, I'd love to hear your comments on this because this has been going on now for like a couple of months now. And what's really funny is he, like Kevin Hart still apologized, but he's still not doing the Oscars. So we still don't have a host for the Oscars. I honestly don't think anybody cares who's the host because we're only watching really for one reason. Is Black Panther going to win whatever awards that it's nominated for? <laughs> uh, that's the only thing that we really care about is if Bill Street could talk, which I still haven't seen yet, which I want to see. Is gonna- I haven't seen it um, I'm planning to go see it. Uh, that's the only thing that we really care about, girl. We don't care who hosts the Oscars. Like, Kevin Hart's not that funny anyway. It's okay. <laughs> Kevin's heart's not funny at all. He's never been funny. <laughs> but um, I think I 
what you said really stuck with me. The fact that he says he wouldn't tell those jokes today. Like, that is not an apology. That is an uh, an awareness that culture mm. has shifted and these have been deemed inappropriate. That still does not, that doesn't tell me that he's okay with having a gay son. That doesn't tell me that he's okay with being around homosexual people. Mm-hmm. That doesn't tell me that he's safe for the black community because if you can't be safe for all black people then you're not safe so um and that's what bothers me like when you are sincerely contrite about your past behavior you understand how to apologize and people bringing that back up to you you don't jump on the defensive it's more I did that. I'm really sorry. And people can also see in your actions that you have changed. And we haven't seen that with Kevin Hart. And I said, I'm glad you brought that up with Don Lemon, because when Don Lemon first got on his pro black stuff, I didn't believe that. I thought it was performance because Don Lemon used to be way out in left field. Exactly. Back when uh, the Ferguson protests and everything were first going on remember when he bought the card out on CNN that was like is it okay to say nigga or something like oh, that that, like, was, that that was classic TV right there I, I don't think anybody appreciates he was I love that Don Lemon that's the Don Lemon <laughs> that's the Don Lemon he, he was wilding for a while and it wasn't like one day people just said oh yeah he did this one good thing we can invite him back to community like he his actions over time has proven that he is not the same person that he was and that's what it takes for people to truly be forgiven Mm, that's very true and I, I, I often say like apologies only work when you do the work afterwards the work like yes. apologies work when you actually sincerely do the work to show that you are sincere about what you say like you don't just apologize if you apologize and go back and do the same thing again then you were never really sorry uh right and like people get tired of hearing this same stuff and to be honest with you black queer people are not surprised like in I've heard, I've had many black queer friends tell me like Kevin Hart's career is not going to suffer because of this. Like he's still got a movie Mm -hmm. coming out. Like he's got another animated film coming out. uh, The life of pets Two. He's going to be just fine. Like nobody's Mm -hmm. worried about Kevin. Like this isn't going to affect Kevin Hart's bank account saying that, you know, you saying homophobic stuff a long time ago and it being recovered doesn't cancel anybody. We all know cancel culture isn't, necessarily a real thing uh right i mean unless you're r kelly uh but that's a whole nother conversation is it Uh, we'll get into that later later. uh but before we get to that uh some really good news um so centoya brown was uh granted clemency uh by tennessee's governor Um, which this is incredibly huge news. If you guys haven't been paying attention to this story, um, Ms. Brown will be eligible for release August 7th after serving 15 years in prison and will remain on parole for 10 years. 
Uh, for those who do not know, Centoya Brown is a Tennessee woman who was convicted as a teenager f- for killing the man who she said she was a sex trafficking victim of. And she was finally granted clemency on Monday by Governor Bill Haslam. Um, she was granted full uh, commutation to parole. She will be eligible for release August 7th after serving 15 years. Uh, this comes in a crazy time uh, because she was 16 years old. She was fearing for her life and she killed her abuser. And it's really interesting. Like this has been on the Twitterverse and this has been on the internet for a while now. People have been talking about this court case because it absolutely made no sense. Uh, But does our court system ever make sense, Kia? Does it? No, not really. Um, So to see this woman you know, get this type of justice was huge for me. Uh, personally, I've been following this story for a while. I was very happy that Governor Haslam, you know, granted her clemency. Um, and she's very grateful for the support and prayers and encouragement that she's received, um, including from Tennessee De- Department of Correction officials. Uh, her case was inspired by the 2000 documentary entitled Me Facing Life, the Centoya Brown story. Um, which put her into the spotlight. And that is an amazing documentary. If you haven't seen it, please go see it. Uh, And it's just been really amazing to see, you know, her get the justice that she deserves. Now, granted, I don't feel like that she should have parole for 10 years. Uh, Mm -hmm. I feel like, Mm -hmm. I feel like the state made an absolute complete mistake and they've already taken away 15 years of her life. Kia, as you know, Mm -hmm. I work in disenfranchisement outreach work. So I work, with former convicts, uh, uh-huh. my new position that I just received. So I, for my listeners that don't know, I told you guys that I'd be moving soon and I am officially in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, so working with former convicts um, on the daily and seeing the things that they go through, uh, being on parole for an extra 10 years when you've already you know, served your time for 15 years for a crime that you rightfully committed because you were trying to survive because you were being raped repeatedly and, you know, drug into, you know, sex trafficking. It's just very asinine, like the way that our court systems work. Uh, it, it, it's, it's like, I don't understand restitution fines and fees. Like if I've already served my time, why am I paying the state money? Like you've already taxed the hell out of regular citizens for me being in jail for a crime I really shouldn't even be in jail for. So why are you making me pay money after that? And then on top of that, why am I being put in, why am I being on parole for 15 years, which is crazy. But uh, right, it's great to see, um, you know, a black woman get justice, um, which we're going to talk about black women getting justice soon. But I love to hear your thoughts on this, because this has been something that we've all talked about um, on the across yes. the that that was a really good day for me because it just shows like all the organizing and the activism that um that we're doing like all of this work it's exhausting and it's tiring and it's easy to walk away from it because change doesn't come easy mm. but that just it was refreshing to have this win even though it doesn't it's not a perfect win and rarely are wins perfect but um 
it, it felt good to have this win and to know that the work that people are putting in is not in vain and change does come. I am really hoping and praying that she is surrounded by a strong community to help her um, reestablish her life. I mean, she's been in prison since she was 16, right? So she, like, to help her learn to navigate this world as an adult and to really support her through these 10 years of parole, because that can't be easy. Um, so I, I hope she's surrounded by people who really can be there for her and help her um, just relearn the world and give her the love and energy and support that she was denied as a child. Absolutely. Uh, I think that that is exactly what I was really thinking so many times in what I'm learning working with disenfranchised former convicts is that these are what I like to call forgotten people. Um, and it is very hard for them to reacclimate back into society because many people don't care about them and many people mm-hmm. get about them. Uh, this, they don't really have a, so a lot of them don't have a support system um, once they leave the penitentiary. And for the most part, it is, very vexing to them and it's it's it, it's hurtful to see them you know try to reacclimate themselves back into society but they don't have as many rights they're on parole which is basically like another jail sentence um where mm-hmm. false move and you can be right back into the system that right just escaped um and this was a system that she should have never been placed in right and you know i think about you know Imagine being, you know, raped repeatedly in, in, in a sex trafficking ring and you finally get the courage to get justice, to take justice into your own hands, because far often too many times we see that rape victims never get the justice that they deserve. And you are a survivor of, you know, this abuse as a child and then you're thrown in jail because of it. Like mm-hmm. what judge mm-hmm. thought that that was a good idea? Like how could you look at this and be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, still going to go to jail. Like, that makes absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Shout out to Centoya uh, Centoya Brown. I'm so, so happy for her. Um, August 7th is going to be a glorious day. I wish she was getting out sooner. Uh, That's the, uh, yeah. I was like, I don't understand why she's still in there, you know, till August 7th. I thought that she'd be released. She should have been released immediately. Uh, but like I said, our justice system is a very flawed one that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, next story we got, and we're getting close to the meat and potatoes of all of this. Uh, I wanted to talk a little politics real quick, uh, in my favorite topic, uh, Democrats and Rebletikins. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, we're going to the view, um, my favorite white woman in the world. Um, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, Megan McCain <laughs> <laughs> um, is uh, really not that big of a fan of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I mean, honestly, who in the media is <laughs> right now? Right. Um, it seems like Republicans really don't like her uh, and they pick on her the most. It's really funny because a lot of women of color um, 
have now entered the space of, you know, the political realm, especially in the House of Representatives and mm-hmm. like, you know, the youngest black woman ever uh, to serve in the House, you know, to serve in Congress, Ms. Lauren Underwood, shout out to her um, in the state of Illinois um, in the 14th district, which is a majority uh, white district. And for her to win, mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, but, you know, they haven't picked on her, you know, they always constantly come for, you know, Alexandria. And I'm like, I know I get she's a firecracker. She says what's on her mind. I appreciate her for that because it takes I love that millennials have representation on on Capitol Hill. Uh, Yeah. Like, I think one of the coolest things about uh, Alexandria is, you know, after a day of, you know, dealing with, you know, these old white men that really don't like her too much and do everything to try to make her look worse than, you know, than I don't think she really is. I've seen people compare her to Sarah Palin, which I thought was, I was like, whoa, let's, you got too much dip on your chip. Let's bring that back. Um, Who did that? Because I saw that tweet the other day too. Oh, I can't um, remember. And you don't have to say their name out loud. <laughs> I wish I could find it. Uh, but like, what is just extremely alarming about all of this is just like, it's almost like they're trying to break her, but it just doesn't work. Like, she was just on Rachel Maddow. Um, I want to say it was last night, if I'm not mistaken, talking about the things that are going on at the border. Um, and she has not been shy about calling President Trump a white supremacist um, and calling him what he is, calling him a racist, calling him a white supremacist. And I commend her on that because not many politicians will go out there mm-hmm. and do that. Uh, and it takes somebody to be brave. Now, mm-hmm. does she have to learn the tricks in the trade of, you know, big government and things like that? Of course, everybody has to learn it, you know. She's a rookie. She's a freshman involved in all of this. So it is, you know, very much new to her and she's learning a lot of new things, but she is no Sarah Palin. Uh, (laughs) I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. Um, The things that she says when, I mean, she definitely means them. And like I said, it's, it's good and it's refreshing to see this. I don't agree with all, all of her politics, um, but I agree with most of them. And it's very good to see her, you know, on this platform and be able to, you know, not only speak uh, for a millennial generation, but when she gets off of work, she gets on, you know, Instagram live and like gives us the tea about Washington and tells us how things work and part of, you know, how the government works and, you know, what bills are being passed. And that's important because it offers transparency Mm -hmm. to politicians. As you know, I'm big Mm -hmm. on transparency. So, you know, Mm -hmm. For somebody, especially in the Instagram, you know, from the Instagram generation and the Facebook and Twitter generation, you know, to get on, you know, for somebody to use Instagram TV and Instagram live correctly, you know, outside of, you know, doing dumb shit on Instagram and actually showing us, hey, this is what I did today at Capitol Hill. And this is what's going on, girl. Let me tell you about this mess that these white folks is doing. And to see that, you know, for her to use her platform in that way, that is something that we have never seen. It, it reminds me of, and I'm not comparing her to him, but it reminds me of Barack Obama's uh, political uh, social media campaign around Facebook back in 2007 and 2008 in his first, you know, election run and, and, and how it moved from Facebook to Twitter, you know, in his 2012 election run and 
how him using social media as a platform to give him transparency so you could see what the president was doing it gave you access to politicians mm-hmm. seen before and because of that now that's why we have platforms the way that they are it's why facebook holds town halls it's why twitter live streams all debates now it's that has now changed and she's taking it a step further with facebook and it's been really interesting to see but Megan McCain and and classic doesn't really like her ideas about abolishing ice, which I am for abolishing ice. I don't think it should be replaced with something else. Um, The institution of ice in itself has always been racist, um, has always been anti Mm -hmm. in its core um, since its inception after 1911. I do believe that we need safe borders, but we need to make, we need to make it make sense. And what the president is pushing for is not, illegal immigration it's just anti-immigration period and i think that's what Mm -hmm. people aren't really understanding like it has nothing to do with you know comparing these people who are seeking asylum which is legal by the way and yes yes um and you're purposely going after these people and then not to mention children are being stripped away from their mothers and fathers they're you know they're getting sick i have their stories about children being sexually abused in these detained in these um detained in these camps and things of that nature it it's disgusting and it, it it it's it makes me sick to my stomach and it also like showed like is like it is like can america be this ugly yes they've done it before they did it in world war ii <laughs> um to mm-hmm. to uh the asian community after after pearl harbor so it is very um it's disheartening that uh, that's the only thing I can think about, but I love to hear your thoughts on this. I think she scares them. She's an unapologetic, she's an unapologetic woman who does not follow their rules. And, um, like they are able to pass the laws and to do the things that they do because they do it in a cloak of silence or, you know, behind like this big curtain and, a lot of times we don't know what's happening in Congress unless you sit up and watch C-SPAN. And I'm a political nerd as much as the next, but watching C-SPAN all day is like super duper boring. <laughs> um, so she is like pulling, she is pulling the curtain behind and you see that the wizard is really just a man in a suit. You know, mm. we get to see how this political machine operates and, it empowers us and that scares them not just her um her uh her ideas or her beliefs but the fact that she won't even play by their rules yeah she refuses and it's not only just her calling out republicans on their fuck shit but it's calling out democrats on their fuck shit yes um yes like not being afraid like she was not keen on the idea of Nancy Pelosi becoming Speaker of the House. And I agreed with her to an extent, but I understood the purpose also of having her in that position. Um, be- and, but it's and because it's give and take. Um, yeah. Nancy, Nancy is a career politician and you need somebody that's a veteran, as we can see now, since she's been in that position with her classic bait and switch of the president um, forcing, basically forcing him to admit that he's going to shut down the government, which by the way, she had an Olivia coat on afterwards, which was hilarious. Yes. Um, 
And for her to walk out and put those sunglasses on, I was like, okay, girl, I see you. I see you. <laughs> and see, here's my thing with um, Nancy Pelosi being Speaker of the House. I never heard a good reason of why people didn't want her to be Speaker. It just, it felt like people just wanted something new, but there really wasn't a logical reason for them to want something new. It They didn't even ha- really present a good new option. It was just, we don't want her. It wasn't yeah. because she had been ineffective in the past or it wasn't because they had someone who could do a better job. It it, it felt really weird it's, to it, me. It smelled like sexism. That's what I often mm. think. And mm. I often don't say that when it comes to white women, but it smelled like sexism. Uh, <laughs> a lot like sexism to me. Because if you can't give me a reason as to why you don't like this woman, then I'm going to have to start assuming things. And when I start assuming, I really start peeling back the layers because I'm like, okay, well, give me somebody that you think would be a great speaker of the house. And nobody was really trying to offer an alternative. uh, Right. Like no one. So I was like, okay, if you're not going to give me an alternative, then obviously you just don't like this woman. (laughs) Like that's Mm -hmm. starting to sound like. And so far, she's been a great speaker of the house, and she's been very diplomatic. And she has made um, my favorite white man. I'm being sarcastic again. Mitch McConnell look like the Franklin <laughs> Turtle son bitch that he is. I promise <gasps> that man dies. I will dance like David dance. No one. Oh my dance. gosh! I hate that man so much. Um, he is such an evil person. Uh, today he actually blocked the Democrats bill from opening from reopening the government but they did however get the FDA up and running again which is kind of important um gotta have somebody inspect the food right Uh, so I'm just really interested to see what's next for um Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um on Capitol Hill um but it's just really um fascinating how scared they are of her uh, mm-hmm. because she's not afraid to call them out. And it's also really funny that they don't speak about her calling out Democrats. It's always mm. calls out Republicans. Um, nobody's talking about how she's really keeping it, as I say, transparent. Like, she's giving everybody the same energy. Like, mm-hmm. you want some fuck shit, I'm gonna call it out. If you want some fuck shit, I'm gonna call it out. These hands is ready to eat for everybody. Uh, right. So, and that's one thing that I want to see. And also to wrap up, uh, Democrats and Rebloodigans, uh, one of my favorite white men, and I'm not being sarcastic when I say this, Mr. Robert Mueller, who is the scariest white man in, in Washington, <laughs> he really is. Like, I feel like, I feel like Robert Mueller is like, I don't even know how to explain it. He's almost like Debo. Uh, in Washington, <laughs> like when he pulls up, like everybody tucks their chains and uh, and their collusion <laughs> accusation uh, real quick. So uh, CNN actually just dropped some breaking news today stating that Robert Mueller is wrapping up his investigation. We should know something, I want to say probably by February, beginning top of February um, or end of February, beginning of March, I would expect. I would expect but um, investigators have focused on conflicting public statements by President Trump and his team that could be seen as an effort to influence witnesses and obstruct justice. 
according to people familiar with the investigation, the line of questioning adds to indications that Mueller views false and misleading statements to the press and to the public mm. as obstruction of justice. And that could set up a potential flashpoint with the White House and the Trump legal team should that become mm. part of any final report from the Mueller investigation. Now, Mueller hasn't addressed this issue publicly, but prosecutors have dropped hints that they view that they view public statements as possibly key in influencing witnesses. So mm. also court filings from the plea of Michael Cohen, the president's former personal attorney and the greatest snitch on earth, as I like to call him, included allegations related to false public statements not usually considered illegal since they aren't made directly to investigators. A December sentencing memo filed by Mueller's office notes that Cohen, that Cohen lies were amplified in public statements, including to other public, to other potential witnesses. The memo said that this was done partly in hopes of limiting the investigation into possible Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, an issue of heightened national interest, unquote. So it is getting very, very close I feel like Trump is really unraveling uh, personally. He's really starting to um, unravel at the bits. Uh, Good. It's, it's really starting to happen. Um, calling for states of national emergency and things of that nature. Yes. Um, it's all starting to get erratic. And I'm really starting to think that we're getting to the end of this. Uh, like we're getting to the finish line of all of this. I said that I didn't think he'd make it three years. I, I said I'd be shocked if he made it three years. I said after midterms, I said things would change um, very, very quickly. Um, I didn't think that, you know, Democrats would win the uh, Senate, but I did give them winning uh, Congress. And winning Congress is, is a huge win, bigger than what people think. And when you think about what's happening now with Mueller, um, it's really getting scary for, for Trump because there's only about four more people that he can really indict and um, they all happen to share the same last name. Might be. Um, so <laughs> when that happens, I really think like shit's going to hit the fan because um, and also there's rumors that Mike Pence could also be indicted as well. Um, in Good. Um, because, you know, a lot of people's biggest fear was, well, shit, if they get rid of Trump, we're stuck with. We're stuck with Pence, the career politician. Uh, wait, wait, is- pause, pause. Mm-hmm. Who's third in line? Is that it the Speaker of the House? That would be Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> oh, shit. That just... <laughs> so what's really funny about all of this, I called it, and I called it the Democrats' wet dream scenario, which would be... Oh. Um, which, like I said, listeners, I don't know if this is going to happen. Like I said, this is just a dream scenario. And we honestly... You'd be the luckiest person on earth that this actually happened if you called this. But what could essentially happen is Mueller could also indict Mike Pence because who selected Mike Pence to become vice president? None other than Paul Manafort, who was the campaign, Mm -hmm. was also under investigation for a lot of fucking crimes. (laughs) Yo. A lot of crimes. Uh, and I don't know why that didn't click when we were having the whole should Nancy Pelosi be Speaker of the House debate because I remember thinking Paul Ryan is third in line and this is not good. No, Paul Ryan. But it, yeah, Paul Ryan it is never. Cl- 
clicked. It never clicked once um, Democrats regained um, control of the House. That is exciting news. Mm. I look forward to seeing how this plays out. Yes, so a lot of people thought, you know, hey, we could get a lame duck president, which is very true. That is a very big scenario. But also, with that being said, we could have a Democratic president for two years. Now, one or two things can happen, um, which would probably more than likely be that even when, if Nancy Pelosi was to become uh, president, the one thing that would happen is we still have a majority Democrat uh, Republican Senate. So mm-hmm. they could block a lot of things that she would want to do. Obviously, they would not. Uh, they would work tirelessly to make sure that nothing that she passed would come to power. But this would come right before the 2020 election. And every single Republican who has supported Donald Trump would be in a free fall, obviously, because if he comes down and if he's indicted, and if he resigns or if he's impeached, every single Republican is going to be responsible because their name is officially and permanently tied to this president. So anybody who has blindly supported him or, you know, sold their soul to the devil um, is going to have to pay for it in the polls. And mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of Senate elections in 2020 as, uh, as well. So uh, this could shake up to be something serious. Uh, I don't know if Nancy Pelosi would necessarily want to run for re-election if she was to run hypothetically. And like I said, people, these are all hypotheticals. This is not something that is actually happening, but it is something that could possibly happen. Because like I said, Paul Manafort chose Mike Pence to be Trump's vice president. Trump Mm -hmm. originally going to pick New Jersey governor, Chris, former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that swiftly changed. Mike Pence was kind of left field for a lot of people because they did not expect it at all. Um, and Mike Pence hmm. has been a monster, to say the least, in the state of Indiana. He is the reason why the HIV and AIDS mm-hmm. actually spiked in the state of Indiana. Um, not really a nice guy. Um like I said, a career politician. So he makes things look very, very um, as politicky as he can, as I like to say. Uh, But I'm not a fan of Mike. Um, Nothing would make me happier than um, him being indicted as well. Um, But I also feel like if he is indicted, if there's one white man that is going to sing like a bird, it is that one. Because if you saw his face, when Nancy and Chuck Schumer went to go visit Trump and Mike Pence about the potential shutting down of the government and his face when Donald Trump said, I will shut down the government personally, I'll take the burden. Because we know the number one rule, if you don't know in Washington about shutting down the government, is you never admit that you're going to shut down the government. Mm-hmm. And No one should want to own that. And so for him to own it and Mike Pence was sitting there, he really was looking like, can somebody just kill this nigga now? Like, please. <laughs> like, I'm I'm really tired of this irresponsible white man. Like, I didn't sign up for this. Like, and it's, he's kind of like physically, he's like kind of castrated in all of this because he's just kind of there. Um, and he just kind of has to deal with it. But I'm hoping for better days. Here is, you know, like I said, to our dream scenario. Like I said, it is a Democrat's wet dream. If this is what you want, if you're a liberal and and you want to see, you know, true uh, justice, that would probably be what happens. I don't know if that could happen, but 
it's a major possibility. Uh, keep your eyes out on it. Just continue to pay attention to what's happening in Washington um, because it's only going to get crazier as the days go by. It would be something if Trump gets indicted during Black History Month. Buddy, buddy, buddy. <laughs> uh, now that would be something. Uh, yes, it would. But um, let's get to the meat and potatoes. Um, as you know, and uh, the reason why we bought Kia on uh, today was uh, for a very, very important and special documentary that came on. One that she has spoke several times on seven different platforms about on television and across Facebook on uh, some different TV shows. Um, he has also written about R. Kelly and his constant acts of abuse against black women before in the past. If you have not checked out some of her pieces, they are absolutely amazing. But Kia, obviously, six-part series drops, absolutely amazing, absolutely in-depth. Uh, some of the best uh, documentary work I've seen, uh, honestly, since the OJ documentary on ESPN 30 for 30. And I want to say that was a five. Oh, that one's really good. Mm-hmm. And this, I said, this one's pretty up there. Um, I hold this one in high esteem. It is hard to watch. It is very gut-riching. Um, it, it hurts. Um, I often say that the uh, first two episodes are... Um, gut punches but the third and fourth are haymakers and Mm. five and six are uppercuts um it just hurts to watch uh because you knew it was bad but you didn't know it was that bad um and i think that's the one thing that you know you think about like you knew it was bad like for people who have paid attention to r kelly's past and all of these different things but for the people Mm -hmm. really did not know this gave them a look into what a monster looks like. And uh, from episode one, it was just a lot. The one thing that I will say that I loved about it was I love the fact that there were black psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, trauma experts. I think there was like only one speaker that was actually white. Um, and in an age where we're talking about mental health more so in the black community, it was important. And I love that they thought that it was important to have those people and to have that representation on the documentary as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, so I have some criticisms of the documentary. I try not to talk about them because I feel like that distracts from the conversation and I don't want to do anything to do that. Like, because we are having like really important conversations that not just address R. Kelly, but addresses our communities. And that's where I think the focus should remain. Um, ask me your question again. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the doc on the documentary. I have criticisms as well. Um, it's it is flawed, and it's beautifully flawed to me. Uh, yeah. Personally. Okay, that's fair. Um, there's. I found myself, and this is one thing that I said often, and I had conversations with friends about, and it was about some of the parents on the, um, some of the parents on the documentary, especially in parts three, four, and uh, parts four, five, and six, who were very well aware of, you know, R. Kelly's, you know, past, and yet still, you know, were a thought, you know, hey, my daughter's nice, you know, my daughter's 
Uh She's going to be just fine. And I was like, at this point, you have to know better. But also at the same time, and we, we spoke about this, it was, you know, I often, you know, think about, I don't want to criti- I never wanted to truly criticize these, these parents and hold them too much responsible for their children being abducted um, because we know that in the music industry, uh, children especially are preyed on by music, by music industry heads as well as artists all the time and taken advantage of. And this is a classic case of that. Also, and I think that that wasn't really a conversation that was had. Just last year, we had the new edition uh, documentary, uh, well, uh, movie rather, and uh-huh. so those boys were taken advantage of. And how many behind how many behind the music VH1 specials have we seen where black musicians, especially yes. in the 90s, especially were broke because their music label had basically systematically fucked them you know uh-huh. getting their royalties they didn't own any of their music they didn't own anything like we worked if i'm not mistaken tlc at the grammys accepting their award and they were talking about they were broke uh-huh. um so uh-huh. so how is it far-fetched it's, it shouldn't be too far-fetched that parents are falling for this still um yeah, um, everyone thinks that they're different. And um, what I've been saying a lot of is you had parents who thought they could outparent a predator. Yeah. And you can't. It, like, one thing that I will say, people call R. Kelly, like, um, a musical genius. He's actually a genius manipulator. Yes. Um. And I think he's been able to do that with adults just as well as he has done that with kids. Yes, yeah. And um, so I will say my initial reaction to those parents as I was watching, I, I'm trying to this, do this new thing where I don't react, but I respond. <laughs> but my initial reaction was, it is. Because my initial reaction was, what the fuck? Like, why would you do this? Why would you, um, why would you put your child in this position? Yes. Um, particularly post-trial, like, but they thought, cause I don't even know if you can say, I, I think, um, one family may have said like he, he was acquitted. I, I don't. I don't think that's a fair response. Like, I need you to do a little bit more than that because there was just too much evidence for us to walk away and said he was acquitted, so he didn't do that. And there's also too much access to information. Uh And Uh and that's my biggest thing. It's like, the internet is too free for anybody to be stupid. Uh, Uh Like, you have a nearly thousand dollar device in your back pocket and you can Google anything. Google is free 99. Yeah. If you do just a little research, you can find out that, you know, hey, this guy is kind of dangerous. And, yes, you know, seeing these parents deal with this, it, it, it broke my heart, you know, because mm-hmm. you're seeing these parents, they're just trying to get their daughter back. 
But at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, you never had to be in this position. Like, because the information was accessible to you and you chose not to listen. I still have sympathy for them. I'm still empathetic. I can Mm -hmm. sorry for them. But at the same time, it's like, I'm still looking at them like, but I know like at the same time, the reason why I'm not going to be too upset with them because I know that they regret this probably for the rest of their lives. And yeah, and and more than what we'll ever be angry, they will hold more regret than we could ever be yeah, angry. They- but I I think they thought their present. I settled on the fact that they thought that their present was enough, and that their present their being present could help control the situation and they were wrong and I think that's an important message for us to take back into our communities Mm -hmm. so that when there are predators in our communities and we think that we can control it by telling our girls to cover up or don't hug Uncle Joe when he comes to the family reunion or um, don't be alone with the pastor. And the, like, we set up all these rules where we think we can control the situations when we allow predators to remain in our community. And the reality is we cannot. So mm-hmm. until we start addressing the problem, which is the predator, mm-hmm. we will always have these situations. Exactly. Um, and I also... Just the one thing that I that bothered me the most in a lot of the conversations that I was having is that people were like, these girls, these young girls should know better. And I'm like, I know mm. grown women that's getting manipulated by the same grown ass men telling the same grown ass lie every single day. But you expect them for a 14 year old girl to know better? Sis, stop it. All right. And- people. We saw a grown-ass woman who was 35 years old quit her job to go live with R. Kelly. Like She was wild. wild. That was wild. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's the first thing I said. I was like... That was wild. And yeah, was like, that was one of those moments where I had to pause and not react, but really think about, and, like, and, what would cause this woman to respond like this? And the one thing that I also told, like, people were like, how are some how is somebody a fan this much of R. Kelly? And I said, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, you know, I know everybody's seen, you know, MTV's True Life. It's some of the I, I've always said it's some of the best, uh, some of the best TV that MTV's ever made. But they had an episode about uh called True Life. I am, you know, a super sports fan. And mm-hmm. um it follows the life of like three sports fanatics, like to the point where they are obsessed with these teams. Like their life is like their life is that team. Like there was a young woman on there. Her life was being a New York Jets fan. Like that's what she's known for on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Like she is known as the New York, the New York Giants fan or whatever, or, you know, I'm pretty sure that there's somebody like that in new, like for for any professional, you know, sports franchise, you know, you have the guy that's the big Clippers fan that wears the suit that's half red and half blue. Like you have super fans everywhere. And Mm -hmm. people often forget that fan is just a short term for fanatic. And Mm -hmm. the one thing that I have understood about um, R. Kelly in particular is that he under, he is one of the very few people who understands how powerful he really is. 
and he understands he understands that's what makes him so dangerous. I often say the most dangerous woman in the world is a woman who knows she finding can get whatever she wants. Because uh, when you know that you're that girl, there's nothing anybody can tell you. And mm-hmm. when and for R. Kelly in this situation, for he understood after 12 play, I really think it was after he won that talent contest that he got that, I want to say it was what, $200,000, $250,000. He understood. He was like, oh, I'm a celebrity. Like, and I can do what I want. Like, there was, he's untouchable. Like, he saw him, I don't say he's untouchable, but he saw himself as untouchable. And so here's the thing. I have a lot of empathy for a young childhood R. Kelly. You have this little boy who is in a rough community. And according to the documentary, he doesn't operate like that. He's they would call him a punk in the community. He cannot read and he cannot read because he's not trying. He is like he's getting help and he's like mentally not able to comprehend to be able to read and write well right he's being picked on and bullied at school Mm -hmm. because of this in his community because they are rougher than him and he's being molested at home you have a child who is safe nowhere right all he knows is abuse abuse and control people are controlling him Mm -hmm. So he automatically has a warped sense of power. Mm -hmm. So when he wins a contest, he becomes a superstar, and all of a sudden he is the powerful one now? Mm -hmm. That is how you end up with the sadistic monster that we see today. Right. Power is like his safety net in a certain way because it has been used against him for so long. It's his safe space. Yeah. Like power, being in control and being, you know being you know able to control these women is his safe space and if he was to mm-hmm. if he was to lose that power i don't know what he would do he would probably become a danger to himself more than others uh i, I think that i think that's it and and i'm let me um say i am no psychologist this is you know like this is just regular nigga talk i don't know I don't right know right like, you, so like, i have no idea my best friend is um is a therapist. Um, she knows better than me and a counselor. Um, but it's just really fascinating. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. Probably the saddest thing, but also the funniest thing in the documentary was when his wife said, take me back to that man who asked me to teach him how to read. The first time I saw it, a single tear came down my eye. The second time I saw it, I chuckled because later on in the documentary, she said, well, we know you can't read, so who booking the flights? <laughs> and I want yeah. to tell you, the sound that came out of my that came out of my body was not human, um, and- because I cackled <laughs> for about a good fifteen minutes, and my roommate looked at me like I was crazy, but he couldn't help but laugh either, because I was like, you know, she got a point. Because when he was on that Huffington Post interview, and he was like, "Do you know what?" Uh, what deposition means and i beg i was like could she please ask him to spell it but oh my god like that was a really good moment in the documentary for a couple of reasons like it 
it, there was so much tension that it did provide like some comic relief. She would like she was serious when she said that, but for the audience, you could get some comic relief from that. Yeah, because it was it was um, heavy. Like the whole entire yeah. time, it was so heavy. Like it was so hard to watch. But the moment that she said and, that, I was like, "Listen." <laughs> and it also though really centered the fact that enablers allowed him to do this. R. Kelly never could have done all of this on Without his own. Without enablers, yes. Because- the team of people made it possible mm-hmm. for him to rape and abuse all these girls and women for the past 25 and years. And the one thing that I will commend them for um, is them stepping forward and admitting that they were wrong and that they made mistakes. Like, the young woman who, in the beginning, and I always forget her name, she was like one of the first ones that spoke. She was one of his dancers. And she said, you know, I saw him having sex with 14-year-old girls in the studio. Like, had them bent over in the studio while he's making music. Like, in the booth. But I feel like she was a child at the time, too. Yes. Yeah, she was a child at the time. Yeah. So I don't, okay. I don't hold her responsible for that because she was one of the first people that said we were so naive and so stupid. I said, no, child. Mm-hmm. You were children. And, exactly. And, the, and I for, for one thing that I hate is that black children are always told that they have to know better and mm-hmm. they are never given room to be wrong and never be right. and never given room to grow and never like in, in white spaces and in black spaces. It's amazing that children and I think that's something that needs to be paid attention to. Because in white spaces, in the white world, children are black children are not innocent. Um, we know mm-hmm. that the prison pipeline is real. We know that our children are reprimanded, you know, much more than white children are. And then in the black community, they're not giving chances to be wrong. Um, right. They're not also given chances to be children, um, which is also a big thing. They have to know better, you know. It's and it's almost like it's a defense mechanism to the uh, as a parent, and I kind of understand why a parent does it, but I also hate it at the same time because it's like, girl, you were a kid, and you're sitting there saying we were so naive, we were so stupid. It's because you were a child and you did not know your brain was not fully developed mm-hmm. at the time. You know, if there was an adult in the room with some good goddamn sense, when he saw a 14 year old girl being bent over in a studio by a 20 year old man. He would have been like, okay, you got too much dip on your chip. What the fuck you doing? I'm calling the cops. You know what I mean? Right. For other people to be like, for his tour manager, be like, I could see the hurt on his face when he was like, you know, I came to R. Kelly and I came to Robert and said, you know, are you messing with Aaliyah? And, um, you know, for him to, you know, vehemently say no and then to turn right back around and say, you know, it's Aaliyah, she's in trouble she's pregnant and then he's got to sit there and admit to him you know what happened because imagine being like because Aaliyah was 12 when she met this man and also a lot of people were like where were Aaliyah's parents and I was like y'all forget Aaliyah's uncle was his Mm -hmm. his manager Mm. I was Mm -hmm. like so they were thinking basically what those other parents were thinking hey her uncle is there so she's not, not, and this was before we even knew this was going on, for real, for real. And, so, and can we be honest? It shouldn't be. It your child should not be unsafe with an 
with another man in a public environment. Like that that should not be the norm. Thank you. Where where your child can't be I mean because the reality of the situation is your child is going to be alone with the male teacher at some point in time. Like it the problem is the problem is the predator, the man, the culture, the fact that other people were around and they saw this happening and they did not tell anyone. Right. And I think what is just so unfortunate about all of this is like, I've seen people talk about, you know, I've seen people say um, Aaliyah shouldn't have been brought up into this. And I'm like, no, it's, it's actually important. I said, I think the one thing that y'all don't understand is that just because Aaliyah is a victim, that does not make, that does not define what, what she was. First of all, mm-hmm. like her being a victim does not, that's not all she is. That's not all she ever will be. And most importantly, um, on top of that, she is not um, someone, you know, she deserve her, that part of her life deserves to be told because she was sexually abused. Like she was taken advantage of it at, at young, at, as young as 12 years old. And, and not only that, like, he molded and he shaped her and he molded her. Like her lead single was AJ Nothing But a Number, which now mm-hmm. when I listen to the song. It, I can't listen to that album. I can't listen to that album. But when I listen to the song, when I listen to the song during the documentary, it sounded mm-hmm. like it was an R. Kelly song. I never knew that he really mm-hmm. wrote the music, but you yeah. could hear his voice on that. Song. Mm-hmm. You could hear that this is an R. Kelly song. This sounds a lot like 12 Play, for example. And you were just like, you know, another "You Are Not Alone" sounds a lot like an R. Kelly song. It does. And that's now. another song <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. And, and I, I can't listen to it now. And and that's one of my favorite, like, to know that that song is about that young woman who you know was pregnant and lost her child, and you know mm-hmm. she was a child having sex with a grown ass man. To think about mm-hmm. R. Kelly being twenty seven and Aaliyah being fifteen. Um, Mm-hmm. To think about his wife being locked up in the house, you know, and not being able to go anywhere, which his wife was stunning when she was 18, 19 years old. And I was thinking, you know, she was probably thinking, you know, like it was, I can't remember. I think it was the the older woman who met him at 35 that said there's R. Kelly and then there's Robert and Robert is the devil. And anytime a black woman says you the devil, she means that shit completely. Yeah, <laughs> She means it absolutely completely. Like, no questions asked. So, like, sitting there and, like, seeing him abuse these women is just, it's just awful. Like, the young woman from the tape and, um, you know, I was really so happy that, you know, she had moved on past this life and she had become a mother and gotten married and all these other different things. But, you know, she felt responsible, you know, even though she was a child at the time when she first started sleeping with him. Um, she was 17 at the time, but, and it also, what I noticed was he always made sure that he upped the age and he always made sure that he brought them to Illinois because of the statute of limitations. Um, mm. you know, and I don't think anybody realized that like the young woman who actually ended up being in the tape with the young girl with, um, what's, uh, the woman's name, her, um, with the niece who was actually in the tape. Um, uh, not tasty. What's her name? Uh, um, 
Sparkle? Wait, Sparkle. the niece. Sparkle. Well, I don't know. I don't know the Sparkle is the aunt. Yeah, Sparkle is the aunt. I don't know the niece's name. I know that some people have said that the niece's name is out on the internet. I have chosen not to look up her yeah. name to keep her anonymous. Um, What's amazing is like I have been aware of R. Kelly's case since the man I remember watching MTV and the marriage certificate was announced and reading the Vibe magazine article because like Aaliyah was like three years older than me. So this was like relative news to me. And and I, I remember when the tape dropped and I want to talk about like how we label that a sex tape and not child porn. And that says something about mm-hmm. the culture mm-hmm. and how we have normalized that. Mm-hmm. But I, I was in college when the tape leaked and it came out. So like I followed this case for all my life, all um, basically. And I had never heard that girl's name until this past week. And it's, it, and it seems like it was really just an open secret. And that in itself is very interesting to me. Yeah, like her name is, has rarely been said. I know that somebody said that her name finally hit the internet, um, you know, during the during the uh, the documentary. But I chose not to look it up because I didn't want to know her name. Um, mm-hmm. I personally didn't want to know it because I felt like it would make me go down that rabbit hole of trying to find out who she was. I was cool with it mm-hmm. going it with Sparkle's niece and leaving it at that. But the young mm-hmm. woman who was like, you know, we couldn't talk to each other unless we were sleeping with each other. And that's how I found out that these women were 15 years old, 16 years old. And like mm. for her to say, like, you know, it felt like her and, and Robert had already done this before. That was one mm-hmm. um, was that it felt like they had already done this before. Um and that when she was crying, he was like, I can't watch this. You know, I can't, you know, mm-hmm. like the fact that he records videos of him having sex with children and then masturbates to them is just mm-hmm. disgusting on a level that I can't understand. Look, and mm-hmm. here's the thing. I understand people watch porn. People make video, people send personal videos to their significant others um for masturbation purposes i'm not judging anyone who does that but when you are a grown man and you are masturbating to having sex with a child as well as another woman that you met when she was underaged that is sick under on a level that i can't even begin to even grasp um i don't think that detective stabler or detective benson from svu could even handle that amount of disgust um, in a law and order <laughs> episode, like it is, it is it it blows your mind um, that somebody could be that vile, um, but it also doesn't surprise you because, as Jamila stated, um, who I love, Jamila uh, stated mm-hmm. stated in the documentary, you know, where was Essence? Where was Ebony? Why didn't the culture? care about this issue and i said because the culture didn't care about black women look and i feel like for the long Mm. feel like that is something that we don't want to talk about the culture has never cared about black women it's never cared about black Mm. safety it's never cared about black women's well-being it's never cared about black women's agency um it's never cared about black women period 
it has only taken advantage of black women for the longest. And I think that's something that was missed out on when she, when she said that, that is the first thing I thought of. I said, because the, the culture doesn't care about black women and we've known mm. for a long time, but we have never actually said it out of our mouths that they don't care. And like you just said it, you were three years younger than Aaliyah. So mm-hmm. for a person at that age, if she's 15, that would make you 12, 11, mm-hmm. you know, around, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, that was like, Aaliyah was your world. Like mm-hmm. as a being a fan of hers, you know, growing up in Alabama and Georgia, like that was your world. Like you were like, this girl is dope. She's around my age. You're, this is like that teeny bopper age, that preteen teeny bopper age where Everything is, you know, all those, all these people are cool to you. You know what I'm saying? And to see that and then to think about that for a second and then you see that, like, after that, everybody was just kind of like, I remember Torre said it and Torre's now kind of in trouble for, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is ooh, child to get him. Uh, <laughs> um, that was just really like I didn't even because Terry Crews was supposed to be doing an interview with him today and he tweeted today he just put canceled and I didn't even know why and then I finally see the report and I'm like oh oh okay wow because um, you know Terry Crews has been phenomenal in during all of this you know during the Me Too movement and, and sticking yes sticking up for black men uh, being sexually assaulted and being sexually abused um, and that's also another thing that I wanted to mention. I hate that the only time that black men want to discuss black men being sexually abused is when the conversation is centered around black women being sexually abused. That profoundly pisses me off, but because I've seen in internet spaces where we you know, years ago, people tried to have a conversation about, you know, black men being, you know, raped by older women. And it's almost like niggas wear it like a badge of courage. Um, we saw a video just release of Lil Wayne asking, you know, forgotten artist Little Twist. Um, <laughs> I say forgotten because he hasn't made music mm-hmm. in years, but asking him had he lost his virginity. And he was like, I lost my virginity at 12 years old and I loved it. And it didn't even sound to me or register to me like he was really saying that um, from a standpoint of he like he actually meant what he said. It sounded like he was in pain when he said that Um, Mm -hmm. and how we don't want to talk about, you know, the rap industry and the music industry as a whole, especially in black in black circles, how it has abuse children like little Wayne for all intents purposes was was raped as a child I I don't I'm glad um you brought that up because um so just today it has made news that the American Psychological Association has said that toxic masculinity can is like endangers boys and men Mm. so this is like an organi- a medical organization is naming this thing that we've been talking about for a while mm. within the culture or within a certain segment of the culture. And what I will say about like people like Lil Wayne and I think Chris Brown and a lot of these people who have been abused as kids who won't name it as that, 
being a victim of sexual violence is hard. Mm. And um, when you add that masculinity, the performative toxic masculinity that um, boys and men are taught to do, it makes it even harder because to be a victim, they see it as some form of weakness. Mm, So a lot of times... A lot of times I think that is a protection mechanism for them. Like if I say that I enjoyed this or if this was good, um, then I am protecting myself from having been a victim. Mm -hmm. And there's another reality that I don't think that we want to talk. We like to talk about, but sometimes sex can feel good even when you are a victim of sexual assault Mm. especially when we're talking about like kids and this is like a regular occurrence it is not abnormal for that to have some pleasurable feeling even when you know it's wrong and we don't know how to navigate that conversation because we see that as it feels good so you must like it and and those aren't the same thing. And also, children don't have control over their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, Correct. When this is happening. So, like, what's really alarming to me is when we have these conversations, it's like when we're talking about women being raped. And, um, and you hear men say, you even hear rapists say, well, if you know, if she got wet, it wasn't rape. It wasn't rape, but thank that's you. That's not how this works. But that's not how it works. That's not how the human body works. It's just like, nigga, my dick get hard just because I woke up in the morning. I might look at a sandwich and that shit might get hard. Doesn't mean I want to fuck this. Sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sexy ass sandwich. I don't know, but there are natural bi- bodily functions that happen. Yes. Um, you know, I don't think that people really understand that that's how it works but that's also because people don't understand how you know this is also a reason why I say often that um you know sexual education is so important (laughs) um you know what's like for children that don't really under like that are in a space where they don't um, understand. Like I often say too many times that the education system has failed a lot of children, especially when it comes to sexual education, because they're not being taught about consent. They're not being talked about. They're not being taught about how these reproductive organs actually work. And they're, when they are talk, when they are talking about, you know, their reproductive organs or they're talking about sex, it's only from the aspect of reproductive purposes. It's not talking about sex for pleasure and things of that nature. So they're not learning these things. And mm-hmm. it really, you know, it's, it's shameful um, that, you know, we have a bunch of children going around. I was talking to a friend about this, um, about pornography. And I was saying to them that um, the Booty Talk uh, series, I feel like taught a lot of black. I, I'm just, I know, but I feel like it is a class. The Booty Talk series is a classic series. I want to say it's like 200 video, 200 Booty Talks. Um, and it was a very taboo niche uh, genre. But the funny thing about it was 
if you wanted to learn how to have sex, you watched a booty talk. And this explains why so many of y'all are bad at sex. Not only are they bad at sex, explains <laughs> the reason why a lot of black men um, early on in age didn't eat pussy. Because if you go back and watch, I'm I'm being dead ass. When you go back and watch booty talks, they never ate pussy in booty talks. Like they literally, the girl would come in, she sit down, she introduce herself. She'd be, My name is Summer, uh, um, Diamond, or you know whatnot, um, Aquafina or some bullshit like that. And then you know it'd be like the same niggas, Brian Pumper. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. There was like I can't ever remember that other new, that other dude's name, but he used to talk so he used to talk to the women so mean, and I'd be like, "Why are you talking to these women like this?" You're bringing up all of my issues with porn right now. Um, <laughs> like he used to talk to the, he used to talk to them so mean. He was like, "That's how you fuck me." I'd be like, "Damn, like nigga, calm down." She's trying, she's trying her best. <laughs> damn it! Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> Like it's it's a it's a lot of work down there. Come on, man, stop it. <laughs> uh, so, like, I was just really. But one thing that I realized when I went back, I went back and watched some of them, and I was like, "Yo, none of these niggas are eating pussy." Like, no one of these niggas don't know how to eat pussy. They've been watching so much porn, it does not actually. Because remember, porn is made for the male gaze for the most part. There are very very few pornography. Uh, there are very few porns that are actually made with the intent of women, you know, being satisfied by watching them. For the most part, it is made for the male gaze. So you're going to see a lot of dick sucking, um, a lot of women doing all the work and a lot of niggas just sitting there. And uh, obviously uh, a lot of baby batter on a lot of uh, on a lot of faces and in uh, and, and ass cheeks and titties. It's um, it's demeaning. Uh, and you know, you know, well, I mean, some, I won't say it's demeaning because some people actually enjoy this, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not going to, I would never kink shame. That's not something I'm going to do, but it's just interesting to me that when this, because we're not having conversations in our households about sex, um, as a whole as parents. And then on top of that, they go to their homeboys or they go to their cousins, their older cousins. Um, and you, just like you brought up this toxic masculinity, they were like, well, if you want to learn how to fuck, you're going to have to, you know, do mm-hmm. you got to do this or do that. You got to fuck her like this, do it like this, uh, or, or just watch this video. And, you know, they passed, like, that's how we would watch pornos. Like we didn't, I didn't really have access to the internet in my neighborhood and we would pass around booty talk, uh, DVDs to each other. <laughs> um, like I cannot make this. What? What year was this? This was like 2004. Okay. <laughs> this was like 2003. Okay. No, because I, I remember in college, we were still on the VHSs. And yeah, yeah it, interesting times. You, interesting times. <laughs> before, right, right. Showing my age. Before there was free porn everywhere yeah. on the internet. Yeah. And, you know, it was, and I mean, I remember at one point in time, people shamed people for, for masturbating until I figured out that everybody did it. Um... We so here's the other thing with we have unhealthy relationships with sex, we have unrealistic expectations and uh relationships with sex. We don't know what healthy sexuality looks like, and that is another aspect of sexual abuse. And I don't want to say like R. Kelly sexual abuse, but like sexual assault and like 
not understanding, not having uh, honest conversations about bodies, about the power that goes into sex on and being honest about the way we socialize men and women differently Mm -hmm. and how all of that plays a role into us being in this me too moment now. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's actually really good. uh, Kia. Like I never even thought about that. Um, I really don't. um, And that's why like, and I'm glad that you brought this up about toxic masculinity. It's great that that news has come out. I need you to send me that article because that comes such um, a good time. But um, final thoughts on R. Kelly, and we're going to wrap up after this, uh, but final thoughts on, on the R. Kelly documentary. Um, I have a couple, but I'll let you go first. Um, so this summer, I went to a training session, and it was all about calling people in instead of calling them out. Mm. Um, and what it looks like to, like, really bring people and grow people in a community to help them grow in a community instead of pushing them out. Um, I think that's an important aspect. I think we need to make sure people are ready to be in community. Um, What I will say is I think R. Kelly is a very broken man and he is not ready to be in anyone's community. So like I think especially from the church aspect we didn't talk a lot about that but like the church is all ready to forgive R. Kelly and um because we all sin and all this other churchy stuff that we just throw out and without really thinking about the real life consequences R. Kelly is not there R. Kelly needs like deep psychological help and a prison to be honest he needs to be accountable for his actions Mm. so i i want people to stop trying to bring him back into community until he is committed to getting the help he until he's held accountable for the violence that he's done Mm. and he is then committed to getting the help that he needs Mm. and like even just yesterday for his birthday party and like his reaction um, to everything. Like, I think there was someone said he made a comment like, fuck everything that's going on out there. It's 